Noah, what is the key insight? Hexapodia is the key insight. Six feet. And what is that supposed to mean? That there is often some key nugget of fact that if you understand it correctly and place it in its proper context, will transform your view of the situation, allowing you to grok it completely. And in the context of Werner Vinge's amazing mind-bending space opera, A Fire Upon the Deep. The importance of Hexapodia is... That those sapient bushes riding around on six-wheeled scooters have been... Genetically programmed to be a fifth column of spies and agents for the great evil. Today, however, here we seek different key insights than Hexapodia. And Brad, what are our key insights today? Today, we seek key insights about economic development, in large part because Noah read David Ox and Henry Williams on the long, slow death of global development and was annoyed, and because we both happened to read, um, we both happened to read Danny Roderick and Joe Stiglitz, Me at Noah's Urging, a new growth strategy for developing nations. And we have thoughts and views on them. Yes. All right. And uh, that paper, a new, those are some pretty heavy hitters, but the other article that we'll be discussing is by two college students. Who are young whippersnappers. They and are indeed young whippersnappers. They'd be praised for being young whippersnappers. Yep. Yes. Well, I, I would, I we would were like all to know once that you have a, young whippersnappers. Well, we were, and I called me a promising young whippersnapper and um, and you also called Marshall Steinbaum a promising young whippersnapper. Um, yes. Marshall Steinbaum has now sort of gone into a spiral of of denouncing every Democrat as fascist. Uh, and um, yes, I'm a you know a, okay. my, you're like, a slightly successful blogger. I don't know. Are you still a young whippersnapper, or are you? I'm a, no longer a young whippersnapper. You're what generation are you anyway? I am of the older millennial generation. The older millennial the people born in the 80s. Okay, so the people born in the 80s, you can now actually claim to be middle-aged. Yes, yes, we are middle-aged now. And well, uh, no, you're middle-aged. I'm a cranky old man yelling at clouds by now. True. I can yes. yell at clouds too, you know. I, uh, mm -hmm. I, uh, yeah, I but you're I've not this privilege. You're not driven to do it the way that people mm -hmm. in their 60s are. You know, yes. as the world changes out from under them due to Schumpeterian creative destruction, and all that is solid has melted into air. All that I'm... is sacred has been profaned. <laughs> and we are supposed to finally have to come face to face to grips with the actual state of the world. Um, I don't know. I feel like as as I've gotten older, I've continued to be annoyed by all the things that I liked that went away. But mm -hmm. then I uh, I do tend to like most of the new things. I I do love novelty, but mm -hmm. then I miss I miss the old stuff too. And I wish that somehow there was a way to preserve all the old stuff, um, while while also adding new stuff instead of just uh, you know discarding. What the old do stuff you mean by it. preserve? What kind of the old stuff do you wish to preserve? Well, rock music. You ah, know, okay. Nobody likes rock music anymore. Uh, a few people do, and, and a few there's people still a little do. bit of that culture. You but I still wish, I wish can... it had lasted more. Is Jimmy Page still touring? <laughs> uh, Robert Plant is still touring. Robert Plant is still touring. Yeah, but um, that's even more it's... your generation than mine. That's true. It's all kind of pickled into the. It's all kind of pickled into the great cultural electronic zeitgeist that we can access it anytime we want to. It's that just that true. it's no longer the focus of society and of society's social small talk conversation. Yeah, that is true.
Instead, what is it? Um, 80,000 people, four nights, that's 320,000. Um, of them, three quarters appear to have been women, that's 240,000. So that 240,000 of the 4 million women in the San Francisco Bay Area went to see Taylor Swift's Eras Tour this summer. I feel like Taylor Swift did a decent job of carrying on the sort of pop star legacy of Madonna and, uh, and um, you know, Lady well, Gaga. And also and, rubbing uh, people's nose into else. the fact that she can be incredibly versatile. You know, that she yeah. can write and sing almost any kind of pop song. Hmm. And do so effectively. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I feel that pop is still, uh, it's still going, mm -hmm. you know, it's still, mm -hmm. it's still sort of a live thing. And of course, K-pop has just added to the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but you really wish, kinda. you really wish for class or for post-classic rock, by which you mean not Led Zeppelin, but what, Fleetwood Mac? No, no, no. I wish for the days of, um, of uh, like punk rock, you know? Punk rock. I, okay. The, the era of like the Pixies. And okay. uh, Nirvana and those kind of guys. Okay. So I Nirvana... actually, I'm actually too young to have really appreciated that. I was a kid when those bands were still uh, doing their thing. Um, so and Nirvana and them. The Clash. Yeah. Yeah. Does Pink Floyd count? Pink Floyd, I love Pink Floyd, but they're a little too old and one of them turned into a Nazi, which is kind of. No, weird. that's really too bad. Blue Oyster mm -hmm. Cult? Well, you know, I my biggest cancellation was for making fun of the more cowbell sketch. Okay, um, that was the time I hmm. got the most canceled by the internet. Uh, basically, Twitter, uh, you know, like um, raged against me for two days when there's nothing else to do. For there are lots that. of there are lots Saturday of angry Night fans Night. of the nope cowbell scratch sketch. Oh man, do not even that, that turned out to be the biggest secret sort of like you know secret interest group you don't want to piss off like that's who rules america is is fans mm -hmm. of the more cowbell sketch so if i were to say that the more cowbell sketch on saturday night live goes on for three times as long as it should <laughs> i would get canceled <laughs> you're about you better edit that out or you're doomed <laughs> even that's if i do think you. even if i do think it's funny even if you do think it's funny all right let can we talk about okay let's um talk about so let's go back to David Ox and Henry Williams, young whippersnackers, critiquing the state and trajectory of global development, of neoliberal and of post-neoliberal global development, saying that early 20th century, early 21st century optimism turned out to be absolute bullshit and developed and future development went into crisis, that the narrative of progress was in large part based on very questionable metrics, um, like the $2.15 a day in, I think, $2,000 poverty threshold. And getting above that does not mean that you're developed or in any way comfortable. Um, that not focusing enough on manufacturing lost countries their ability to actually get on the right track. And now no one can get on it because there's now no more labor in manufacturing. Um, that East Asia's exceptionalism is about the only thing that actually went right, and that in retrospect, people forgot what the real lessons of global age of development were, which was import substitution manufacturing threw off major externalities and produced a very nice thing. 
and that the neoliberal shift back toward static comparative advantage exports, i.e. commodity exports, is absolutely deadly for the prospects of future convergence. Do I have it roughly right? Well, perhaps, although I would say that they, um, what they view as the golden age of development yeah. was primarily a commodity export boom by developed yes. nations, usually newly independent developed nations, to but, rapidly growing industrialized rich countries in Europe, yes. East Asia, and the Anglosphere. And but then that... they managed to spend a good deal of their money upgrading their infrastructure and also managing to start at least some of their own manufacturing sectors to serve their middle class populations, right. albeit behind substantial tariff walls and quota barriers that um, made the actual value of those investments for society as a whole dubious. Mm -hmm. And which in the age of hyper-globalization after 1990, relatively few of those survived as we shifted from the mass production mode of production to the global value chain mode of production. And global manufacturing adopted its very strange current regionally focused pattern. Yeah, well, so I think we have to differentiate between the ideas of Ox and Williams yes. um, and the idea of... Um, and the ideas of Roderick and Stiglitz. I think those are distinct. Roderick is a big fan of the import substitution push. Uh, right. and I think what you just said is a great criticism of the import substitution idea. But Ox and Williams, uh, I think um, what they talk about are the uh, the post-war decades. And mm -hmm. the um, what they the examples they cite, explicit, they explicitly talk about commodity exports and the commodities boom. And I yes. think they're drawing on a different, slightly different uh, sort of leftist tradition of thinking that the secret to decol newly decolonized developing countries' wealth was to control their own resources. It was the mm -hmm. idea and 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 sell those for a higher price. You yes. so you see you see people on the left still claim this. You see, for example, Jason Hickel and some you know European Green Party type of people writing papers uh, saying that you know the the North. The global north exploits the global south, and this is neocolonialism. And why? How does this happen? They say it happens by the global north underpaying for natural resources. And so there is a strain of the left that thinks, you know, industrialism is the most important thing. Government-directed industrialism is the most important thing. Right. There's another strain that says commodity getting a good price on your commodity exports is the most important thing what you really need to do is simply charge a fair price for your cobalt and your oil and your diamonds and okay. um i think that ox and williams in their praise for the uh mm -hmm. trentes glorieuses or however french people pronounce that the mm -hmm. post-war decades they explicitly right. talk about how uh the development of the rapid development of some newly decolonized developing countries yeah. was driven by commodity booms uh-huh. Okay. Now, there is behind this a kind of very much um, Aristotelian belief that there is a just price out there, you know, that <laughs> things right. have value, and Aristotle would not have said that things have labor value. Um, but things have value depending on the work and the status of the worker put into it. 
um, and that things should sell for such a price. And you add to that modern democracy and say everyone should be relatively equal. And you say that fair prices are those at which the work of pretty much everyone sells in the marketplace for the price of the work of anybody else. And that the market economy in not producing this is an evil, destructive and nasty thing. The problem, of course, is the market economy does not see any just prices at all. You know, the market economy sees things that move through the price system that have externalities that it ignores completely. And from the market's perspective view, prices are shadow values of some kind of constraints in some kind of maximization problem. And the fact that in general, at any moment in time, that demand for commodities is going to be relatively inelastic, while demand for manufacturers is going to be relatively elastic. Well, that means that technological progress in making manufacturers redounds mostly to the advantage of those producing the manufacturers, while technical progress in making commodities redounds mostly to the basis of those consuming commodities. Which Hence, are the manufacturers. The global north wins both sides. It wins as a producer because elastic demand for its goods gives it considerable power, makes its goods relatively scarce. Um, in the market's calculus at every particular moment. And it wins on the consumer side because it's inelastic demand for primary commodity products makes their market power of producers in those markets relatively low. Um, and it's in that sense that the that the globally differentiated economy between manufacturers on the one hand and commodity owners on the other is a system of unequal exchange. You know, it's unequal from a distributional standpoint. Um, the problem is the market does not aim at a distribution. The distribution of wealth that emerges from the market is an emergent result. What the market is focused on is what the market is focused on is productive efficiency you know, on having things have the right prices in terms of their scarcity and their value in production. Um. Right. And so what I, the, yeah. And so the upshot here is that neo-colonialist interpretations are not necessary in order to explain why commodity exports are not an amazing development strategy. I thought I just gave a neo-colonialist explanation. Well, no, because no? nowhere in your explanation did you rely upon the sort of confessions of an economic hitman style dirty tricks to use okay. political and influence and military ah, power okay. to force and trick uh, mm -hmm. develop, you know, uh, developing countries into giving, uh, you know, developed countries an overly cheap price for their commodities. Mm -hmm. So in other words, there were no dirty tricks and there was no military force. It was simply elasticities. And um, and so that's uh, you know that's much more of a hmm. you know a structural explanation than a well, than yes. a sort of a leftist well, yes, institutional explanation. But, but I thought the left was all about structural explanations. I thought Karl Marx's big point was that the market economy is the dirtiest trick of all, because it pretends that people are simply making voluntary exchanges from a point of view of relatively equal starting status. But actually, the way the market works is it systematically rewards people in certain positions here and then makes the others eat it 
on the grounds that you simply had to lose out in a, what is a fair system, so you must have done something wrong. Right. No? So, well... You're saying that Karl Marx was much more sophisticated in his understanding of the interplay between structure and institutions than most modern leftists you run into south of Mission? Yes, but okay, so the... the <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. um, no, the, the, the thing is that there were it was definitely an industrious industrialist strain of the left that said yes you know we need centrally planned uh industrialization socialism was, equals soviet power plus electrification right and we're going to buy the leftover machine tools that henry ford can't use in converting from the model t to a model a at you know at bargain basement prices and install them in factories along the volga yes and then yes. um well, and and some of the factories in the Donbass, mm -hmm. and then fight over okay. those factories a century later. Anyway, um, God, but yes, so so, uh, um, but there was another strain of thinking called third world socialism. Obviously, you know this, but our readers, my listeners, may not, which uh, basically focused on commodity exports because when yes. decolonization happened, uh, these you know a lot of these. Um, countries were very anarchic, very politically divided, starting from very little, but they had been used as sort of resource bases by the, you know, the colonial powers. And the mm -hmm. idea was that, well, that you could keep, you could just keep that economic activity in place. You could keep selling, you know, cobalt and, and tin and yeah. tungsten and copper and oil and graphite or whatever they bought. I guess they didn't use graphite then. Um, but you could sell all the, you could keep selling all these things. Palm oil, I don't know. And to the, Zambia, uh, to the developed and countries. Zambia was richer than Portugal in Zambia 1950. Portugal. And Ghana was as rich as Southern Italy in 1955. Right. You know, that... Well, still probably nicer, Africa so. in 1950 was not seen as an especially underdeveloped region, right? That in 1950, right. if you'd asked the question, you know, did the African slave trade permanently and significantly harm economic development of Africa, people would have looked as you as though you were crazy. People would have said the poorer parts of South America are doing significantly worse than Africa. And the true... um the true places where global development is probably impossible are South Asia, Southeast Asia, um, and the non-coastal, non-Western parts of non-Western-oriented parts of China. Right. That they Whereas say the now, treaty ports are doing fine, but nothing else in China is. Right. Now, fast forward, and yeah. South and Southeast Asia are growing you know, the probably the fastest growing region of the world, if you consider those as one region, or even if you consider yep. them independently, though, okay. that mega region, which includes 2 billion people, more than Africa, actually, um, yes, at least for a while, is uh, mm -hmm. that region is growing um, faster than anywhere on the globe, and mm -hmm. receiving a, a giant inflow of foreign direct investment, especially from Western companies that want to diversify away from China, and from Chinese companies that want to diversify away from China. And, um, and they're receiving all this foreign direct investment and they're growing, you know, Indonesia's growing, India's growing, Vietnam is growing, Philippines is growing, and these countries are growing. And, mm. um, and the, I feel like the people like Ox and Williams certainly don't even pay any attention to this except to uh, sort of um, in say in passing, they don't think India can, India can industrialize. 
Well, that they're working from a knowledge base that, given what they read, is perhaps 15 years behind the times. Yeah, that they talk right. about East Asia exceptionalism, and we aren't going to talk about how East Asia is now rich. And But what they miss is that more recently, Southeast Asia and South Asia have kind of joined East Asia in terms of regions in which economic development and convergence now appears to be fairly firmly, at least, on track. You know? Right leaving Central Asia and Far Eastern Europe, the Middle East, you know, Africa and Latin America as the potential oh. trouble spots for economic development. Maybe so, but if you look at the the living standards in Latin America and the Middle East, which Oh by yeah, the way, they're quite high. They're they're they, quite they, high. They're quite they high. They also track been, each other perfectly on a graph. Which is bizarre. Which is bizarre, but there it, is it's, no it's, reason they should. Well, commodity prices. And so there's no reason. Most of Middle Eastern commodities is one particular commodity. Right. Yeah, but they're pretty. Black gold, Texas tea, as they used to call it on the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> Texas tea. Texas tea, yeah. black gold. Um, yeah. So, so anyway, that may be a mystery as to why those track each other exactly. But the point is that the Middle East and Latin America both have a sort of an average GDP of maybe. 15k yeah but are the poster children for the middle income trap well uh, to the extent there is a middle income trap it comes from the fact that there's two middle income traps there's you're a commodity exporter and because of the elasticities you mentioned earlier in the episode commodity exporters just can't get that rich unless they have a very low population relative to resources like qatar Mm -hmm. um and also do some finance on the side and then Mm -hmm. um so there's that's that's like Middle income trap A is the commodity trap, mm-hmm. whereas middle income trap, you don't know any, how to do anything except dig crap out of the ground, right? And when right. you look at Ricardo Hausmann's complexity economics, mm-hmm. you look, the entire, all the regressions are dominated by this effect. All, all of the regressions that power Hausmann's results about economic complexity are dominated by the fact that commodity exporters export a very few things because they have a because commodities, whereas manufactured exporters tend to diversify because, you know, product variety and, and you know, um, dick that sequence mm-hmm. production functions and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so then, um, so if you look at that, basically commodity, commodity exporters get trapped. Now, I right. there's a, there could be a second middle income trap in which manufacturing heavy countries never make it to the ranks of rich countries because of political dysfunction like Thailand. And so mm-hmm. that that's another possible uh, trap there. Um, but mm-hmm. so far, when I, you know, there's um, uh, uh, Eichen Green's papers uh, with Shin and the other one show that um, basically that doesn't really look like that's a trap. There's a few countries that that get there. But um, you, so, for example, Malaysia, we've seen Malaysia yes. actually slowly climbing into the ranks of the developed countries. We've seen we Poland, have. we've seen Hungary, we've seen Romania, we've seen... Um, these, you know, these countries. So if there's a manufacturing based middle income trap, it's rare. The yes. primarily the middle income trap is just called commodity exporting is not an amazing development strategy to begin with. Mm-hmm. It just never is. But unless you have only import a very substitute, few right? A huge um, amount. Yeah, but then I think you have to say that non-commodity exporting is not always a great development strategy either right 
that not always you know, as you say you can talk nice things about income about import substitution you know but somehow import substitution very quickly turns into building relatively inefficient domestic manufacturing industries that then require a lot of protection immediately right it's that the yeah. kinds of manufacturing that seem to be truly worthwhile are those where you can borrow the middle class of the global north to serve as your incentive revelation device or to serve as your comparative advantage revelation devices and only manage to reward those companies and those sectors that are successful at exporting. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, so basically um, what the, the main thing that I dislike about Ox and Williams is that it paints commodity exporting as the way to riches lionizes and, and yeah. glorifies a time when commodity exporting was the main way that poor countries could increase their, uh, GDP. Well, if you can form, if you can form a global kind of cartel in your particular commodity, and keep its price relatively high, and manage to somehow remove or limit or control the incentives to cheat on your share on your allocation of exports, then it can it can do quite nicely for a while, right? Until yes, people outside but... find a substitute. But it's not, but that's, in, it, realistically, that's not a thing that often happens. Even OPEC's power was broken, and that was yep. the most important commodity of all. Then eventually, Schumpeterian creative destruction comes for you. Yes. In the form of shale, fracking, and global warming. And so there's, right. and so you need to have the ability to be flexible and have the skills and the resources and the capital to figure out something else to do. Yes. Because the way the world market works, it's always Schumpeter is going to show up and you are going to have to find something else to do. That's right. So, now, so that's why I don't like Ox and Williams because of their assessment of the past. It, I think, you know, it poo-poos the really effective sources of development that have developed a bunch of countries. And it, mm -hmm. it you know, upholds and lionizes stuff that was never... A great development strategy well, in the first what place. Well, what do Ox and Williams recommend that countries do? Yeah, They um, don't. They say that countries will not be able to develop uh, now. That countries they... simply can't do anything. Right, you're Because fucked. the global capitalism prevents them from getting a fair price for their commodities. And that is because implied they're are... not stated in their article. And they because there are... Yeah. Well, it's, it's background you know it's in the air. You know it's somewhere behind there, yes. Yeah. And you know that the that, idea is if if, gro if growth is done, you just turn to redistribution, and then it's like you know decolonize the global north, seize their wealth, and you know like you know sack Miklakath and whatever. Do you know what okay. that referenced? No. I, what is that reference to? The Viking name for Constantinople. Oh, Miklagard. Uh, I I um I uh I had a reference you didn't know, a historical reference that Brad DeLong did not know. Mark this day. This Mark is Miklagard. This is Miklagard? Miklakath, I think it was, is a calf is town. Guard is like uh, a country. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. But yes, so right. um, but anyway, the point being that uh this is a silly characterization yes, of the yes, past. Yes, yes. This is the problem that I misread that somehow when I learned it, I misread F as D. Well, okay, but people F reading being your blog, the, what? 
people reading your blog are confronted with a th that doesn't look like a th <laughs> so well, you no, have no room to complain THs, here right there's <laughs> there's thorn and there's s right and thorn is the the is the voiced one right um is the the <laughs> and f is the unvoiced one and so i've always been thought of as mick lagarde rather than mick lagarther um so anyway yeah okay so um that's my problem with not a, yeah so import you know that and they just ignore all the amazing data that's come out since 1990 i mean since yes. 1990 we've seen we've seen unconditional beta convergence for the first time in recorded history we have Which, indeed. It's very nice to see. Um, that that means poor countries actually Armenia catching up to rich countries. Yes, which has never been seen before. Um, although, um, and if you remove China, right, so you still you can, see it. It's China's will, one data point. Yeah, yeah. I will buy your argument that in South Asia, South Asia, and East Asia. Things are going well, and Ox and Williams simply do not apply. Um, I will buy your argument that the problems in the Middle East and in Latin America are right now primarily those of governance and societies actually being able to invest in win-win rather than zero-sum control activities. And that the globals, the state of the world market and the availability of paths to development, of industrial specific paths to development are second or third order factors for what's going wrong in the Middle East, in Latin America. And I would also say in those parts of, well, you know, Poland used to be Eastern Europe, right? Um, and I would say it still is. No, but you, so you have to call it Far Eastern Europe, Wait, or it's you now know, Far Eastern. No, no, but Poland Russia's is now Eastern part Europe. of Central Europe. You know, that Belarus, oh. Russia, Belarus, Russia are Far Eastern Europe. Um, Got it. You know, I see. Like so areas we're, we're using East as a pejorative, not as a geographical descriptor. Yes, all right. <laughs> Maybe we should say things that were under the thumb under the Mongol yoke for several centuries in Europe. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, things that are still under the yoke of people who imagine themselves the successors to the Mongols. Okay. Um, and in Latin America, similarly, it's overwhelmingly a governance thing rather than an industrial structure and development paths thing. But, you know, that still leaves Africa. And right. because of the semi-stalled fertility transition in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, of the 10 billion people alive, we're going to be likely to be alive on the earth in 2100, about 3 billion of them will be Africans. And, you well, know, if African economic growth continues to flop for the next three generations, that is not a good situation. You know, that is a fucking disaster. I agree with you. But before we go on, I would like to correct one small thing. Right. Which is that the 3 billion estimate that you just gave, which is the yes. most up-to-date estimate, and is for Sub-Saharan only, by the way. Good is, God. Um, it's add 400 million for North Africa. But yeah. um, the 3 billion estimate uh, is a massive revision down from the 4.5 billion estimate that uh, had been prevalent just a few years ago. And the reason for this is that the fertility transition in Africa is not stalled and has, in fact, accelerated in recent years. 
as fertility as child mortality has dropped below uh, critical levels, um, mm -hmm. and um, and fertility rates have dropped below five, which typically signals the acceleration of the fertility transition. Um, Africa's fertility transition as a function of uh, GDP is mm -hmm. actually um, is actually faster than any region of the globe has ever been, except for India. Mm -hmm. um, if you consider India its own region, um, so Africa, in most the, the idea that Africa's fertility transition is stalled is kind of over. There's a few countries where it is stalled. Um, mm -hmm. There's uh, Niger, Angola, um, the northern half of Nigeria, possibly Somalia, and then mm -hmm. um, maybe Chad. It's not clear. But uh, generally, for most of Africa, the fertility transition is headed in the right direction. Uh, and the $3 billion, uh, th sorry, 3 billion people is a... Um, is a downward revision yeah from where we were but there but, still is an enormous amount of population growth momentum in the age pyramids there absolutely yeah. is and not just in sub-saharan africa in pakistan and iran as well and scattered um, other places not iran but in a few other in in yes. pakistan to some degree okay but yes so pakistan is its own basket case and we should do an entire episode on pakistan mm -hmm. but uh africa is that's where almost all of global absolute poverty is now pretty much, you know, the, the vast majority of global extreme poverty. Uh, I shouldn't say absolute. I should say extreme, extreme mm -hmm. poverty mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, is in Africa now. And it is the main region of the world where we haven't seen really any momentum toward industrialization uh, where commodity exports are unable to keep up with population or, or just barely able to keep up with population growth, even with other things like urbanization and the internet services that have been the growth drivers of Africa. Um, uh, okay. Living standards have not risen that much. Okay. So we have to hope and pray that this fertility transition actually continues, that it is not overwhelmed and stalled again by ideological cultural things. Um, but as for the rest, we have still have a new growth strategy. We still have Roderick and Stiglitz's a new growth strategy for developing nations. You know, what are the Middle East and Far Eastern Europe and Latin America and hopefully Africa supposed to do in the right. age in which manufacturing no longer has the potential to employ huge numbers of people fresh off the farm? in activities producing goods and very high productivity activities producing goods that are valued for which there's a substantially elastic demand in the world as a whole. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, so, right. So, um, Ox and Williams basically, you know, they, they wave their hands at the idea that, uh, you know, it's just an article, it's not a paper, but they, they sort of, they cite a, um, an older Roderick paper in which Roderick uses the deindustrialization of Africa in the eighties after yes. import, if after the failure of import substitution of, and, um, and a, a few, some other countries like Latin America. Uh, and basically Roderick says, except for Asia, labor industrial labor intensive manufacturing, isn't a thing anymore. You know, um, right. A shift in employment toward manufacturing isn't a thing anymore. Um, but, but yeah, you know, Roderick's Roderick's whole thing there, it it ignored China intentionally at the time. And now it's looking like Southeast Asia, you know, labor intensive manufacturing, if it continues to shift towards South and Southeast Asia, will prove that idea wrong again. 
Um, well, and you'll be left making this claim bit. just for Africa. There are fewer and fewer places where there are people doing routine handwork on assembly line or assembly line like things. You know, it's still very important, right? That actually having the flexibility and sophistication of the human eye hand system is is an unsolved artificial intelligence problem and probably will not be solved until we have something very, very close to artificial general intelligence itself, you know, that it's so hard to do. But manufacturing as a way to get a good income distribution as you industrialize, while that may be dead, manufacturing as a locus in which you can do lots of things with big external benefits that build up the social and productive knowledge and capacity of your people and your organizations. You know, that's still very, very, very much alive. You know, that producing, designing, producing, manufactured things is still an enormously high externality thing. It's just that once you've done that, you then need to figure out a way to get the income that's produced by the activity properly distributed around your society. You know, you need to find a way to get the people who serve the billionaires reasonable salaries, as opposed to it simply falling out from the fact that the billionaires have to hire lots of blue collar workers fresh off the farm and try to treat them relatively well. Right. I do think that Roderick especially tends to conflate um, industrial, it tends to conflate manufacturing's role in absorbing labor with manufacturing's right. role in generating productivity growth. Yes. And those are two different functions. And Roderick simply assumes that they're the same thing because they, in the past there were the same thing. But yes. I feel that manufacturing can generate productivity growth without um, absorbing mm -hmm. huge amounts of labor. Uh, we've seen yeah. this in many countries. No, I was reading a very nice, well, I wouldn't say the manuscript is very nice, right? The, you know, a very interesting manuscript, which has an absolutely wonderful topic last week, which the authors have nailed completely in terms of what they know and what they know about, about the Pirelli family of Italy, um, who used to make tires, who used to make very good tires and who had their factories in the Bicocca district, nor originally farmland north of Milan. And about how their majors, the major struggles of the firm from 1890 on up to 1950 or so, you know, were to create industrial workers who could work on the tire assembly line and would be happy and well paid doing so. You know, providing all kinds of worker housing, all kinds of worker transport, all kinds of education for their children, all kinds of acculturation for people fresh off the farm of southern Italy who didn't really know how to do. Encouraging them, looking or trying to convince them they were full members of the firm and that their families were also the Pirelli dynasties, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, and of course, now the there are no workers on the assembly lines making tires. It's all roboticized. And indeed, the Pirelli company is still very prosperous, but it's prosperous as a Milan and elsewhere real estate baron and construction um, company, um, construction right. contractor. You know, But it was... Right. I wouldn't say Roderick is completely wrong, but I would say that you know, um, no. training up 
and getting human that you know, Claudia Golden says the 20th century was the human capital century. And one of the glories of the 20th century for most of it was that mass production capitalism gave firms enormous incentives to build the human capital of their workers. Yeah. And also to not exercise the market power they had, firms had to not try to exercise the market power the firms had to too great a degree, because that could possibly undermine their ability to take advantage of the firm human, the firm worker specific um, productivity edge that developed during that century. So, and you know, that my, is, yeah, that sorry. is, I think, mostly gone. Um, that well, it's okay, engineers. Look, it's not, it's not know. gone. In Bangladesh well, and in Vietnam, we still see some of this. Yeah, in yeah, yeah. And in, and in Los Angeles and in Los Angeles. A little the bit. Garment you industry. Yeah. You see it. But it's not a quarter of the world's labor force or a quarter of the industrialized world's labor force anymore. Yeah. It's more like 10%. 10% of the world's industrialized labor force. And, you know, it's shrinking. Um Right. But it may on. not okay, be shrinking so... as fast as middle management paper processing jobs are going to shrink over the next 15 years. Right. You know, but, the, but see, one, of the, the one of the interesting things about the current boom in advanced machine learning is that previous, that is the coming of word processing greatly, greatly diminished, you know, the number of secretaries. Yeah. But you know, secretaries were kind of never seen as in any sense the peers um, of the high-paid, formally educated human capital lords of the technostructure. You know, while the interns and the middle managers and the kind of clerks whom advanced machine learning may well replace over the next 20 years, those are in some sense seen as the us of the technocratic upper middle class in a way that secretaries were not. And so there is going to be a lot more angst about the coming of generative AI to all kinds of things than there was about the coming of word processing, even though they look to be about the same magnitude of thing. Right. I, yes. Um, but so I think that it's, when you look at the technology that has, made us shift away from manufacturing. Mm -hmm. It was a couple of things. It was the invention of other things that people wanted to do, which right. you know grabbed a lot of labor. Yes. Right. People decided they wanted experiences in addition to things. And so service workers, you know, in healthcare, they had the experience of having your uh, your back fixed. Yeah. Um, well they, it's because it's significantly better to be a modern nurse than to be a modern assembly line like worker. It is, I would say it's similar. No, but uh, depending, you're, you're, you know, there's a lot more rank. demand for nurses. Yeah. Oh, oh, yes. And there's, there's, there's much more. less there's repetitive more. strain injuries involved in the job. Yes, um, that's true. That's and true. so you've moved a huge fraction of the labor force there. Um, mm -hmm. um, so, right. So I think that that pulled labor away from manufacturing and allowed, you know, that labor competition raised wages and that raising mm -hmm. of wages induced entrepreneurs to invest in, um, you know, automation technology. And that automation technology is primarily machine tools. Machine tools got really good to the point where now mm -hmm. most assembly, assembly line workers in, in developed countries, you know, by which I would include China now at this point, 
um, primarily oversee a bunch of machine tools and tend machine tools rather yes. than, uh, you know, making stuff by their by their hands all day. They, they restart they... them when they crash and they occasionally debug them when the software has gone somewhat right. awry. Well, they, yes. they, they grab the thing and they feed it into the next thing and they look no, at the thing and they... They look to make sure the thing, the thing... They do quality control on what the machine tool has done. Well, okay. And they, they, they move things from one machine tool to the other. We don't have... We don't have robots yeah, to do that yet. We don't yet have robots, right? No, fully automated assembly lines. The main thing that we haven't automated is putting the thing from one thing into another <laughs> thing. thing. Because you have to okay. do, you have to lift up the piece, do quality control, look at it, maybe, you know, shave off a little bit and then put it in the new thing. Yeah. And then once and so again, an unsolved, once again, an unsolved artificial intelligence research problem of actually moving the thing around, making sure the thing is exactly what it's supposed to be, and then putting the thing. Right. In the place where it needs to be for the stupid robot to know what to do with it. And also you you keep track of the flow. You keep track of whether one thing is going faster and whether things are bunching up. So you get as you know few bottlenecks <laughs> as possible. That's like a big mm -hmm. thing. Anyway, so that okay. um but that's what people, right. that's what manufacturing line workers do in rich countries now. And yeah. um uh you know, mostly, mostly. Uh that's like what people in the auto industry or the semiconductor industry are doing. And a uh, semiconductor industry is even more automated, but um so basically, then, what the conclusion we're coming to is that we are still manufacturing fundamentalists in the sense that we still think a focus of manufacturing is essential for economic growth. Um, I think it's important. But that there's an additional problem that it used that specialization in manufacturing used to go a long way to solving your problems of economic distribution. And now it does not. You know, hence the different thing industrial policy needs is not to this time is it's not just enough to encourage manufacturing and to make sure the manufacturing firms you encourage are efficient and competent. You also need to think very hard about how you're going to distribute the wealth created so right. as to keep the whole thing from blowing up. Um, and I would say there's a subtler problem as well uh -huh. here, which is that um, suppose that you have a country put 10% of its workforce into manufacturing instead of 25%. And right. yet, because of greater automation that even helps, you know, people who can just read and do basic sums but can't do anything else, that helps make mm -hmm. those people a lot more productive. Yes. You still are going to want, when you upgrade to, when you upgrade to better, you know, to, to higher value manufacturing industries too, or high, or software or whatever you're going to upgrade to, all those things at once, you're going to need skills in the general populace and you're going to need, and those skills aren't just, you know, like the things you would learn in a classroom. So you can't just wave right. your hand to the school system. Those skills are things like, you know, running a business, managing people, uh, you know, sticking to schedules, which are things that like, these are some of the basic things that labor intensive manufacturing taught two countries one after another. Right, right, and that's right, why the stereotype right. of every country's people changes from lazy, good for nothings to, mm -hmm. you know, like hardworking, like high saving people right. after industrialization. It like Hajun yes. Chang has, has really, um, you know, he has really chronicled how that the stereotypes of Japanese and German people used to be that they're yes. lazy, good for nothings. Then yes. after they industrialize, it's that they're incredibly hardworking. And it's all about these values that have been going back hundreds of years and blah, blah, blah. Um, and how although that changes didn't their the crop, Although didn't the Krupp manufacturing dynasty and the Ruhr say that 
the real thing, the real reason that they liked the Prussians as rulers was not so much that the Prussians would shoot striking workers in the street, but rather that workers were drafted into the Prussian army for three years. Right. Because discipline is very important yes. in labor intensive manufacturing. But the point is, how do you mm -hmm. learn that those kind of soft skills that come from existing in the business world? If you only have 10% of your workforce in manufacturing, you're going to have to learn those soft skills in the service industry. And right. if the service industry is just stupid shit, like, you know, bringing people groceries or like giving people a massage or something that doesn't require you to, you know, really raise your, your business skills, then could that hurt productivity growth because it prevents upgrading because your workers don't understand how to work in a modern economy. Um, and then of course it cements stupid racial stereotypes because everyone still thinks so they're lazy, good for nothings. You know, so that it used years. it used to be that if people actually wanted to hold a job and take home a paycheck, they needed to learn these soft skills that are necessary if you're going to have economic development, at least according to Michael Kremer's O-ring theory. Yeah, right. that people have <laughs> to perform 99.9% of the time in order for a sophisticated division of labor to truly work. And that most service sector jobs do not appear to be right there or do not appear to produce the, you know, to kind of impel the social learning needed to actually get there. And you can only have so many video commercials of Sheena Eaton Easton saying 99% of life is simply showing up in order to convince people to show up on time. Yeah, this was, you know, David Landis so used that. to have a very nice lecture riff on this about how, you know, in the proto-industrialization kind of piecework thing, that most people worked like graduate students. Yeah. That there'd be Sunday when you weren't working, you were kind of going to church and praying, but then Monday you would take as a holiday, it would be St. Monday. And Tuesday, you would show up at your own personal workshop, maybe for three hours. And it wasn't until Friday when your week's worth of work was due to be packaged up and shipped out. Um, it wasn't until Thursday rolled around that you would actually start storming and pull an all-nighter Thursday night and then work Friday as well in order to get the stuff ready for shipment. You know, and quality would suffer. And that also is not the kind of thing that makes efficient use of fixed capital. And as industrialization came and fixed capital and sufficient use became much, much more important, you very much had to shift away from that kind of graduate school, do nothing most of the time, and then pull all-nighters um, kind of work rhythm. Mm. Right. And so, so I do worry about that sort of industriousness yeah. shift, industriousization yeah. in addition to industrialization. Okay, so industrialization, industriousization. Yeah. The thing that annoyed me most when I read through Roderick and Stiglitz was about how mostly they were inveighing against you know, one, size, um, one size fits all strategies. And then calling and, for a new one-size-fits-all strategy. Well, except that there's just being context-dependent is essentially saying the government should do smart things and not do stupid things. And, you know, that's really not not good enough, you know? You, I will agree in principle. 
You can this, only get away with saying things are context dependent if you're the Federal Reserve. <laughs> Anyone else who says it's context dependent is asking for an awful lot of trouble. Lol. Um, either in terms of keeping their job or in terms of actually providing useful advice. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so I think um, I do worry about uh, having only a small number uh, of of your people employed in manufacturing, but I think it 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 definitely ignores the productivity improving right. effects of manufacturing that uh, the export discipline people talk about. So that like uh, Studwell and and Hajun Chang talk about, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think it really ignores that and. Um, so I think that Roderick and Stiglitz have basically ignored the productivity aspect of things to focus entirely on the labor absorption aspect of mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. But I do think, you know, I, I do think it's, you know, it is striking the fact that as manufacturing has shrunk, you know, in most countries as a percent of the workforce, including in China, um, as that has happened, the world has more jobs than it has ever had. There are now mm -hmm. more jobs on the planet than there have ever been. Right. And um, right. and that is true in almost every country as well. And um, that is really astonishing. And what it says to me is that there's no there's not yet any shortage of things to do for people. No, no. And when we look at the sources of external multipliers, the things countries can sell to other countries to get inflows of money that then circulate around and create cities and create, mm -hmm. you know, dense clusters of economic production, those kind of export activities we see that manufacturing is still a big part of it. And there's other right. stuff like software that we've decided not to call manufacturing. And but we've looks... reclassified manufacturing support services as services, but those are part of manufacturing too. Right, as well. And there's things like marketing and whatever that's like manufacturing after services. And there's things like design that we've decided to call services. And there's all these things that we've decided to call services that are related to exportable, you know, things with economies of scale and available productivity improvements. And mm -hmm. I, you know... I still see a lot of generalized industrial sort of stuff that countries can do, um, yes. even if it's not your traditional garment factory of, you know, a bunch of women standing around uh, putting together clothes or, mm -hmm. you know, or electronics or whatever. Like uh, there is still some of that, but, but there's a lot of other stuff too. And I'm not super scared of that. You know, the fact that the fact that manufacturing is now turning into a slightly different looking thing and that, there's these, some other high value activities, including research, including testing and packaging, including all these things that are diversifying. But I still see, I still see countries growing really fast. I see mm -hmm. catch up growth continuing. I see poor countries catching up. I'm not super worried about that. I'm worried about a couple things. Um, Ox and Williams at the end of their article talk about something that I am worried about, which is climate change. Right. Uh, I can talk about Bangladesh's success in making shirts and pants all day, but if Bangladesh is going to be underwater, that doesn't help. Mm -hmm. um, and there's nothing Bangladesh themselves can do to actually stop that from happening. Right. Um, there's a lot more that China can do, but really, it's it's not even in China's hands as one country. Okay. Um, um, so so this is a potential. This so this global warming is potentially a huge problem because since 1870 Schumpeterian creative destruction has been greased by the fact that it's quite clear that each generation is a lot richer at least in potential than the previous one and whenever yeah. countries have not been able to deliver that you know and you still have Schumpeterian creative destruction this 
producing all the losers, things get very, very hairy indeed. And if it's indeed the case that over the next two generations, our technological dividend is going to be consumed by dealing with global warming, we are going to have a world with a lot of very, very angry losers. You know, and there won't be the people who see themselves as big winners, you know, to offset that. So that's a huge problem. Um, the other problem is distribution within nations, right? That right. You know, the the world in which manufacturing remains amazingly productive and a very strong source of externalities for growth, but one in which those are captured by relatively small parts of the population. You know, we need to very much to figure out a way to get respect and income, you know, to people who no longer are able to threaten the man to threaten the bosses with a sit down strike. Yeah. But who are instead simply out there running the food trucks and cleaning, you know, and cleaning up the, you know, and being cleaning up the offices afterwards. Right. So. Problems of distribution and problems of global warming seem to be key for the next 50 years. I think that's true. And there's also one more problem I worry about with regards to Africa. Mm -hmm. Yes. So my basic theory that's always in the back of my mind is Krugman, Fujita, and Beanable's theory Mm -hmm. of of economic agglomeration. Agglomeration and and then de-agglomeration. Yes. Right. Well, well. Um, what happens when you have uh, borders where capital is mobile and labor is immobile right. is that regions uh, industrialize one at a time in sudden yes. bursts. Yes. So, uh, you know, there comes a day when it makes sense for China to do a bunch of manufacturing and then suddenly they do and then they're done and mm-hmm. then costs get too high and then suddenly another region takes off. And so I see now Southeast Asia and South Asia taking off in just the way that this theory would predict. And when I look and back- that Romania is 10 years ahead of Bulgaria because Romanian is easy to learn if you speak Spanish or Italian in a way that Bulgaria is- Germany. Not. Well, yes. not that much closer to Germany. So. All right, fair. Yeah. But, um, um, but still that you can watch, you can actually watch it go boing, boing, boing as yeah. the wave of subcontractors from Germany moves east. Right, the flying and- east fly stalls at the Belarusian border. Um, stalls at the Belarusian border because of Lukashenko and Putin. Yes. Mm-hmm. But but it will, you know, it will happen. It could happen eventually um, if Putin would just get his act together mm-hmm. and, and, you know, Russia could be the frontier of manufacturing as Europeans have always hoped it would someday be. Oh, it um, could have been. It could have been 20 years ago. No, it could have been 30 years ago. It could have been 100 years ago. You know, that's... In some ways, it was a hundred years ago, but only in, in scattered pieces. Um, yes, true. That's true. You know, it was. It could have been thirty years ago. Yeah, like um, we could be seeing a manufacturing. Although, although they are resource cursed, they do have Dutch disease, so that hurts them. Yeah, but if they were rich, if all the Russian educated class emigration that we've seen since nineteen ninety were still in Russia. You right. know, the resources would no longer loom so large in terms of you know that. And if, they if the United the States, if the United States were, yeah, if the United States were as poor as Russia is now, you would be talking about how the United States is resource cursed. <laughs> as well, some days I'm not sure we're not. Okay. But anyway, uh, All right. uh, but okay. So, so I guess the point here is that that's my operating theory of how things work, and that you, mm-hmm. you know, that that the best capacity building things like education and health and infrastructure, what they do is they they let you jump the line. 
yes. ahead of other countries. But mm-hmm. the, eventually the line comes for all and will come for Africa last, unfortunately, but will come for Africa eventually in the latter half of this century. But I'm worried. So you because... are now sounding you are now sounding like the ancient theologian Oregon, who said Perhaps. that in the end, because God is infinitely powerful, infinitely patient, and infinitely merciful, in the end, everyone will be saved, even yes. Satan himself. <laughs> but it will take. Well, I don't quite want to a like, like an African to Satan. No, but, um, okay, but okay, like so. No, yeah, the point is that still, I'm, I'm worried that this will not happen for a simple reason, which is glo- which is population growth outside Africa falling to the mm-hmm. point where, to, because remember that the industrialization of subsequent regions depends on a critical on demand, amount of demand, critical demand from the core, from the industrialized regions. And if the, if the core, you know, even if the core has grown to like 80%, that's a huge core. But if that core is all shrinking, aging populations that don't want to buy a bunch of manufacturing stuff, then mm-hmm. this then this this train could break down because in the model the train breaks down if population stops growing and and transport costs stop falling and mm-hmm. if both those things happen then there's no more impetus for the chain to continue and then Africa could be left off the bus forever and I worry about that I, I worry that global population falling in the industrialized core will will reduce the demand for potential African manufacturers to the point mm-hmm. where the industrialization strategy really just does not work anymore. Yeah. I mean, for anybody. And I can't really say no to you because, you know, the basic I mean, convert tech, tech, to say that technology transfer is easy runs up to the against the fact that technology transfer is not easy. And that there still are 400 million of us on this globe who are working productive only essentially at the level of our pre-industrial ancestors were three centuries ago. Yeah. And, you know, that on the one hand, that's only 5% of the world population. On the other hand, that 400 million people is more people than were alive on the globe in 1400. Um, Right. That's an astonishing failure. All right. Um, so, um, I guess on that downer note, yeah, Yeah. I guess on that downer note, that seems to be a good place to wrap it up. Yeah. Um, so in, in summary, I think my key insights here are that, um, there are the key insights that I would like to promulgate to the world are that the problem of how you provide mass employment to people is different than the problem of how you increase your country's productivity. And it's important mm-hmm. to keep those straight in your mind that commodity exporting should be viewed as a distinct development strategy from industrialization, from mm-hmm. everything else. Basically, if you're digging stuff up out of the ground, that is a distinct way of being a country and, and making money from essentially everything else with everything else combining manufacturing services and whatever. And so commodity exporters should not be viewed as similar to other countries in terms of their development trajectories. And um, all right. Okay. I think those are my two key insights. How about you? And my key insights will be that sometime during the plague, I did really did turn into a grumpy old man yelling at clouds. (laughs) And it's time that I should own that. And so while I want to commend young whippersnappers, Ox and Williams for writing a very interesting article and for staking out what they think is really true, 
you know, I would urge them to kind of take another look at South and South Asian and Southeast Asian industrialization, as well as East Asian ones. And to think that in this particular world, you know, it's all that is solid melts into air. The technological competence of humanity doubles every generation and doubles in ways that are usually unexpected a generation before. And so how the world and its future looks changes every 20 years, and it's very important to stay up to date. Um, And I would reiterate Noah's complaint about Stiglitz and Roderick because their failure to distinguish between manufacturing as a distributional and source of employment and meaning activity and manufacturing as a productive activity. And you plead for Roderick and Stiglitz to give up, to give people much more of a guide than simply to say it's context independent and the government shouldn't be stupid. And yes. yes. And of course, as always, Hexapodia is the key insight. Is the key insight six feet? This has been Noah Smith's and Brad DeLong's Hexapodia podcast on economic development, puzzles, problems, and projections for the future. Thank you very much for listening. And goodbye. And goodbye. And there we are, local recording stopped. That was a great episode, in my opinion. That was a very good episode. We have lots of things to uh, We to have say lots of things to say. That. What shall we talk about next? Ooh, good question. Um, why don't we, we could talk about the improving consumer sentiment and how good the economy is doing. Okay, let's uh, talk macro. about improving consumer sentiment and let's drag on the Financial Times and all other right-wing crypto Trumpists who were saying, you can't say the economy is doing well, people are suffering.
Mm-hmm. <sighs> 